0: I think we need at least one more week in Genesis 3. uh, Just to make sure that we take full advantage of what's there. We could spend a year in Genesis 3. The the implications of just that one chapter alone uh, really make or break our understanding of the rest of the Bible. Now, it's the chapter where everything that was good that God made went wrong when His human creation made in His own image disobeyed. In rebellion... And uh, by the end of the chapter, they're chased out of the Garden of Eden. Um, the big takeaway from the chapter is God takes sin seriously. And we've been working for a number of weeks on how uh, to best understand the world we live in through the biblical lens of a sin-stained world and, and what that means. We'll get into some of these things, but I, I want to reread because we've, we've actually covered this whole chapter, uh, the first message several weeks ago, and then uh, Mark Talbert with the second message uh, two weeks ago. So, expositionally, we've covered all the verses. But if you look back at, let's see, verse 13, then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this that you have done? And then if you skip down, let's see, to verse 22, then the Lord God said, behold, the man... "...has become like one of us in knowing good and evil." We talked about what that meant and what it didn't mean. But I think those are probably the weightier verses of this. They've, they're caught. They're confronted. What have you done, Eve? Adam, you now know in some ways more than you did what I know. And then we read of the consequences. "...therefore the Lord God sent him out of the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken." He drove out the man at the east of the Garden of Eden. He placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. That's enough of God's Word to pause and pray over, asking His, uh, his insight to help us understand and obey what we've got. And then uh, I'll try to frame what it is I want to accomplish with one more week in this chapter. Father in heaven, we thank you for another Sunday. Thanking you, uh, at least as far as my family goes, back together with the rest of the church family. It feels right to be in your house on the first day of the week together with our Bibles open. Lord, would you teach us what we need to know? Uh, Teach us the truth, whether it be hard to hear or uh, complicate our lives. Lord, we want the truth today, and we thank you for it, given to us in your word, Lord, may we be good stewards of it, and we ask all this in your name. Amen. Well, in that, uh, that first message, uh, we talked about how chapter 3 is the Bible's second epic moment. The first would be creation. That's pretty epic, uh, but its fall into sin would be the second epic moment. The third is going to be the flood, kind of the alt, control, delete, reset button on the whole thing. And then that fourth would be uh, the choosing of, of Abraham to be uh, the head of a whole nation of people through which Jesus would introduce, uh, be introduced in the, the passage of time. Um, that second message that Mark delivered covered God's grace in pursuing those sinners. And even that glimpse of plans to reverse and restore the whole order from man down to nature itself in that uh, veiled <coughs> reference to what we would understand is what takes place on the cross where the snake's offspring bruises the heel of the offspring of the woman. One would be Jesus who received a heel wound, that's the crucifixion, and the snake who was dealt a death blow, a head-crushing wound. We, we in little children's books, call Jesus the snake crusher, to take care of sin once for all. That was the second installment. Uh, But today, I'd like to take a shot at contextualizing some of these major themes. They are archetypal themes. You don't get much bigger than good and evil, truth versus a lie, uh, grace instead of judgment. All of that is is wrapped up here, and it has affected our world, the one we live in, even to this day, um, indelibly. You can't not look at the world and, and see fingerprints of these major themes all over it. So, we're going to look at our Bibles here at the beginning and uh, see how this has colored our landscape. Uh, this is one of those uh, installments of taking wasness and trying to make sense of it now in the isness, right? Wasness to isness. Old book, right here today. So, To put that another way, it's an attempt to illustrate the claim that without an understanding of sin and grace, you won't understand the rest of your Bibles. We've already said as much. Without an understanding of sin, you can't understand your own heart because it's full of it. Without an understanding of sin, uh, you're not going to understand salvation because you don't need it if you're not sinful. And then without an understanding of sin, you'll never know why the world is broken like it is. And why uh, since a couple of weeks ago, um, Israel has been in the news quite a bit. And how that one thing can be the basis for so much confusion. Or even trying to find out what's actually happening and who will tell me the truth about it. It's, it goes back to what happened in the garden. Same as every other problem. Pain. Pain. Agony. It's the curse of sin. So we'll take an attempt to thread this uh, from where it is to where we are today. Uh, what can we say about what we read? Well, it was particularly the last part of that where we see that not only um, has this promise of death as a payment for sin, which took place with their disobedience, uh, it did introduce Physical death that would take their lifetime uh, to be known but also spiritual death was s- acute at the moment that God and his created beings no longer have a viable relationship and they've been distanced from him there's no access to proximity there's this flaming sword to keep them out in a way because God's holy they're made in his image but they are definitely not holy anymore they're sinful. Um, there is that glimmer of hope in verse 15, but today we want to look at the ugly part, the sin part. So what happened was they they part company. It's much more dramatic than that, but I think it might be helpful to try to figure out, okay, they were on the same sheet of paper. Now, they're not on the same sheet of paper. What's on the sheet of paper? Who wrote the sheet of paper? Uh, Have any of the terms that were on the sheet of paper changed? Should we change those terms and rewrite the sheet of paper? Uh, If there's lost common ground, can they find any common ground? This would be uh, any type of way we'd negotiate with anybody, right? You hear this type of thing when you've got two nations warring against each other. Who can make peace? How can you figure out how to do it? What's fair? Who's in charge of actually deciding what would be fair? All of that's wrapped up in this too now if we need some help with it we could all imagine maybe the first time or maybe the worst time we ever found ourselves in that situation where we're parting ways with someone that's important to us maybe it was family maybe it was work Uh, maybe it was uh, a group of people that you used to belong and feel like you had a lot in common with and I've heard people say well they left me then they say, "Well, no, they left us. Uh, they changed their mind. No, well, we uh, adapted to whatever." It, no one in this room is insulated from any of that sort of thing, uh, and in fact, the very mechanisms that were touted to be the thing to get the world communicated like it never been connected before have probably done more to fragment our relationships and pull us apart. The, This is just the world we live in. And then, okay, if we're trying to figure out, well, do we need to rewrite the paper? Do we need to reestablish common ground? If we don't understand truth, we don't have access to it. If we're just making it up as we go, uh, if lying is okay in certain situations, do we have much hope of ever getting on the right side of anything or together with anybody. These are all just ways to help us think through this type of thing. And then uh, probably the most aggravating question of all, who has got the cleanest shirt such to be the one that doesn't need to travel the most distance to get back to where we can all agree? And who has to go the furthest because their shirts are the dirtiest? Well, this chapter has a lot to say about a lot of that stuff. And in this case, the sheet of paper... As it were belongs solely to the man who created the whole planet and the universe that is all around it he wrote it he made it he designed it he rightfully wrote the terms of engagement uh, his values are ultimate value his truth is ultimate truth started in a garden which we would call paradise so we can't blame it on being a bad situation you know that's always one of these things put People in a bad situation expect bad results. Put them in the right situation, you won't have any problems. Well, there shouldn't have been any problems in the Garden of Eden, but there were. Uh, Those created in God's image enjoyed a relationship with Him in perfect ease, same as the relationship between themselves in perfect ease. They were naked and they weren't ashamed. It sounds pretty at ease to me. God walked with them in the cool of the evening. But now they've been banished. Flaming sword keeps them out. And we've already read, studied, analyzed, thought over how it happened, but I think you could boil it all down to the fact that Adam and Eve believed a lie rather than the truth. That's kind of the way we framed it several weeks ago. But what I thought might be interesting is to take a look at the way in which they believed the lie, how the lie was presented. Uh, We talked about that triangle where, um, as it should be, God was at the top. And what he says is law. And at the bottom of that triangle, you've got Adam and Eve, and then you've got this alternate story with alternate facts, as it were. And Eve, in trying to decide what to do, flips the triangle where she's at the top. God and the devil are at the bottom, and she's trying to figure out which one of them is true. Now, we're looking back, reading Genesis, and we're saying, well, that can't work, but every last one of us lives our lives like it can, which one of us don't think that the best apparatus to discern the truth, figure out what's least best for myself, is right in here, (laughs) if not in here. Uh, When you're older, think it through. When you're a kid, follow your heart, right? It'll tell you the truth. Is that the truth? Well, if we keep reading, we know that uh, Adam and Eve believed the lie, but What about the snake's offer? Eve's offer from Satan, the alternative story, what uh, the Bible tells us is a lie, uh, some have called to be the original noble lie. Have you ever heard that, a noble lie? Maybe in uh, certain political uh, circles you might hear such a thing. But a noble lie is a falsehood told by a person or a group in power with the aim of manipulating those under their power to do what they would not otherwise do, all with the packaging of some noble purpose. They've got what they want, even if they think that's what's best. But it requires to at least blur the truth to get a group to do what they otherwise wouldn't do. And usually it's, it's packaged in uh, you know, the greater good for the greater group of people. That's basically what the devil's doing here. Um, We don't need to examine his motives. We've got plenty of that in plenty of other places. But if you consider how his lie was presented, it was not, hey, this is my mortal enemy. I want to be him. I hate him and want to destroy everything about him. No, he's going to posture himself as her friend, at least her contemporary, uh, but her subordinate, because he's a creature and she's human. But... Basically, she needs to reach her full potential. She shouldn't be held back by God's arbitrary constraints. She should be able to decide these things for herself. Because after all, who has your best interest at heart but you? It's basically the argument that the snake made. And while Eve is trying on that thought, um, acting in her own best interest, we know the story. She's actually doing the devil's bidding. Uh, She's actually the instrument by which he is engaging God himself, driving a wedge between him and his creation. Eve doesn't know that, but that's what the devil's doing. Um, Actually violating her own best interest in the process. That's the lie. Now... Lies like that, the noble lie, I mean, good grief, they're all over the place. They're the basis of uh, crooked marketing, uh, political propaganda, news spin. Uh, we already talked about alternative facts. Um, miracle drugs, not really. Um, but they're all over the place. And a lot of people tell you, well, we, you've got to at least give us the noble lie. We can't keep peace or make a dollar without it. Is, is that the truth? Or is that just practicalities? Is, is that, uh, what's the word for it? It's escaping me. Y'all don't want to wait for me to remember it. I'll move on. The noble lie, the problem, because if it's working well, everybody knows it. Everybody's, nobody knows it. Everybody's happy. Plenty of profits. Plenty of peace. Problem is, it's just a lie. But if you keep that secret, it's your work. Behind the scenes, though, and we see this played out clearly in this passage of Scripture, the noble lie, as any lie, separates and divides, fractures relationships, even whole societies, because there's more than one version of a common good. That's the problem. And, and, And it gets mixed up as to, well, whose version of the common good are we working with? Which one is the real one? Which one is the fake one? Um, before Satan's noble lie in the garden, there was one common good under God. But now Adam and Eve want to decide for themselves what is good. They've been told they'll be like God if they do. They know it involves direct disobedience, rebellion to his authority, but they do it anyway. Now, we'll leave that there. That, that's what happened. We've already studied it. But another thing I want you to notice, we, we didn't have time to cover God's dealings with Adam and Eve are completely different than the snake's dealings with Adam and Eve. You know, Satan did what worked. Expediency, that's the word I was looking for a while ago. Uh, But God, He never lies to them. God tells the truth. There's no veneer, no packaging, no spin, no semantics. In fact, the truth sounds hard. It sounds like it might not even be safe. It certainly doesn't sound empowering. It's uncomfortable at the least involving hard things that make even us in here at church thousands of years later wonder why he even put that tree in the garden in the first place. Why couldn't you just have let them do whatever they wanted to do? Why do you have to be in charge such that they can't do certain things? Why can't we do everything? But then again, there's a flaw in that thinking. At least that's what we're exploring today. What does he know that we don't know? and because we don't know it we'll ruin it where he won't at least that's what the Bible is telling us he's qualified has the authority to make that one rule even if we break it and why did he make it knowing we would break it and if he made us where we couldn't break it would that just make us robots where none of this is any fun or glorifying to him just like it wouldn't be fun to marry a robot or raise robotic children some might prefer that and trade their kids in on robots I don't know Life's rough. It's hard, but it's wonderful and it's great. But we have a brokenness. It all goes back to this story of where sin came into the picture, which one day God will take care of for all time. So the truth he tells his creation, uncomfortable that it is, um, he never lies to them even for their own good. You notice he didn't jump in and say, no, that snake's a liar. And smear tactic. And then just get into the ditch, both of them going back and forth until Adam and Eve had lost their minds. And it happened at all. Um, what we see is the same thing we see from the beginning of the Bible to the end God's prophets, his apostles, they don't lie to produce a desired outcome. Doesn't matter how many we'd be better off as a result of a convenient untruth. That's just not the way we see any of this unfold. God's truth seems to truly be one size fits all. Love it or hate it, it's your size. So all that said is somewhat of a preliminary. I want to take sin and then lay that over things like equality and democracy. We kind of did this with God's image, but strangely enough, would you believe it? That because we're made in God's image, it's a great leveler. I mean, it's... God's image is enough to raise the chin of the poorest beggar but God's image is enough to you know bow the shoulders of the mightiest king it, it we're all kind of the same in that way well it's the same uh with 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 sin uh Romans 323 agrees with the old testament all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of god that absolutely knocks the legs out from under the notion of any social hierarchy built on the fact or supposition that one group of people is more important than another group of people. You, you, you just can't say that. If we're all sinners and we all die naked and uh, stripped in front of the all-seeing eye of God who's going to judge us, then how can anybody be more important than anybody else? Your vote's the same. Your death is the same. It's no more important or no less important than anybody else if we're all sinners and have to face God. It is the great leveler. And, and think for a moment what it would be like if we actually, you know, acted like we believed that. Um, it would make a big difference. To believe that everyone is a sinner to believe, is to believe that in the most important sense, everyone is equally in need of God's saving grace. It was uh, G.K. Chesterton, Chesterton. Set of sin, obviously an unattractive idea, but when we wait for its results, they are pathos and brotherhood and a thunder of laughter and pity, because only with original sin can we at once pity the beggar and distrust the king. I kind of like how he said that. You know, that you feel bad for the beggar because in your heart you know, I could just as easily be in the same situation. There's nothing special about me. And then the guy who gets too high and lofty, you want to say, <laughs> enjoy it while it lasts because you're, you're the same as any of the rest of us so you could also say uh, vote's the same death is the same um, when we die we all face, face God naked um, so what, what about the way our government is established in America it's a democracy uh, there are other nations on the planet that do the same but there are nations that do it differently. Uh, does a sober minded doctrine of sin help us in a democracy? And were, say, our founding fathers onto something when they thought so, uh, having used this really old book for much of their ideas? If we believe in sin as the Bible describes it, and that we are all profoundly broken and flawed creatures, we should be disposed to a more charitable view of the human condition, don't you think? With compassion for every single last soul made in the image of God. It's everybody. If that's what we really believe, we know that no one can dismiss another from a position of inherent superiority because no such pedestal exists. Uh, C.S. Lewis, many of you know... His writings. He's he's quite famous. Um, But he had said at one point that he was a Democrat. And for us, we live in a two-party government. You're either Republican or or Democrat, right? But if someone across the pond says, I'm a Democrat, that means they're a proponent of democracy, Um, which we say the same thing, but it it gets confusing just because of semantics. But... um, He said that he was a Democrat, but not for the reasons most others are, not because humanity was so wise and so good as Rousseau would have taught uh, and believed, but Lewis, but that everyone deserves a share in it just because we're so good and so wonderful. That's not why I am a Democrat. He said the real reason for democracy is just the opposite of that. I'm a Democrat because I believe that mankind is so fallen, no man can be trusted with unchecked power over his fellows. It's both. You're worth enough to be part of it, but we're all bad enough that no one of us should be trusted with the whole ball of wax. We'll abuse it. We always do, given enough time. I think he's right on. And then, this, this is great too, Lewis quoted Aristotle at one point who had said that some people were only fit to be slaves. Aristotle, in his thinking, well, some people are such bad shape, they're, they're really only good f- for being slaves for other people. And uh, Lewis, in argument to this, responded, I reject slavery because I reject the idea that no man is fit to be a master. There's your problem. Not that someone deserves or doesn't deserve to be a slave, but because nobody deserves to be a master over anybody else. And then John Stott argues that the democratic government reflects the paradox of our humanness, respects creation and dignity because it refuses to govern human beings without their consent and insists instead on giving them a responsible share in the decision-making process. But it also takes the fall seriously, that is, human depravity, because it refuses to concentrate power in the hands of one person or a few people and insists instead on dispersing it thus protecting human beings from their own pride and folly. The truth of this is that these aren't new ideas. We see this stuff based on these archetypal themes we find in the book of Genesis. Truth versus a lie. And who's qualified to tell the truth? Uh, Man's capacity for justice makes democracy possible. Man's inclination to injustice makes it necessary. I'm proud to be an American, but I'm not as excited as I once was to jump in the political arena. We're more polarized than we've ever been. It's madness. You almost get the idea that somebody wants it that way, that we're more profitable, than mad at each other than we are happy. Um... I don't know that we've ever been in a situation where so much money was concentrated in a few big banks or so much power over the entertaining uh, economic force of those that control the big, big tech. Um, You know, they can just decide this group can't communicate with this group if they want to. And um, we've got an advantage where one group could take over another group. All of this sounds like conspiracy theory until you start really wondering if we have as much free speech as we used to have. There's free speech in Genesis. Even to ruin yourself. God let it be that way. He doesn't twist our arm. He lets us choose morally free agents with a book to go by. And the Holy Spirit to keep us straight. Jesus having paid for our redemption by his own blood. We need to remind ourselves of these things at times. Alright. That's our democracy. But let me try to put a finer point on, uh, on this concept of sin. How it functions. And then maybe take a stab at uh, looking at something recent and seeing what it looks like. The word "autonomy," and, and that's, uh, that's what I think is probably the best, most simplistic way to describe sin. Uh, you got to be careful with it, though, because autonomy means a lot of things. It's context that makes it make sense. But the term itself comes from the Greek. It means self-law, a law unto oneself. That's, that's autonomy. Uh, we wanted to come across the Atlantic for our own autonomy. Uh, We don't want to be ruled that way. We want to rule ourselves. That would be an example of autonomy. Uh, Teaching my children how to tie their own shoe and then them being able to tie their own shoe in some ways is autonomy. They don't need me to tie their shoes anymore. It's good. But in the context of Genesis 3, uh, autonomy is cosmic treason if God indeed made the world and everything in it. It's His creation. Then to say, well, I don't need you, I'll do it myself, is to declare your independence from the God who made you. Um, the implications here are, are wide. I'll try to, to keep it simple. But in the garden, Adam and Eve chose to live by their own law, according to their own code, what they thought should be permissible or Unpermissible, impermissible, non permissible. I don't know the correct one. Rather than according to God's law. They chose to do this in God's world that He created and sustains. It's kind of like, uh, I don't know, I'm trying to think of the best way to describe this and get in the least amount of trouble. You know, let's just say you got a roommate who uh, somehow figured out a way to pay significantly less than the rest of you, but he's making most of the mess, most of the effort. Before too long, the whole dorm's just going to say, done with you. There's no free ride. Or kids who think they're big shots once they get to a certain age, when really, mom and dad support the whole system that they're having so much fun pushing back on. Uh, one of the illustrations I heard, I can't remember who it was, but it, they, they were writing and noticed uh, a young girl sitting on the lap of a father on a train, mad and just slapping the tar out of his face. And he wrote, She wouldn't be tall enough to slap his face unless he's sitting on her lap. So Adam and Eve are rebelling against the God who made them and the world and sustains it all. Um, God had already made clear the simple terms of good and evil as it pertained to Adam and Eve. And no change orders from their do-it-yourself government are ever going to annul his sovereign rule. But this willing independence has two consequences. What happened in the Garden of Eden and is the essence of sin, this, this autonomy, implies a demotion of God's status and an implied promotion of theirs. It's a coup, as it were, as far as authority And this is where we still find ourselves today. Uh, That's why I think this idea of autonomy is the best way to describe it. Um, We're a long way from the garden now. But it's still here. And think about this and see if it it might fit with a way to assess. Because let's not kid ourselves. Most of the world doesn't believe in what we're talking about today. Uh, most of the internet would love to have little sound bites of several things I've already said. Uh, but the world is still a very reasonable place, all things considered. And uh, art is beautiful, and people think. Uh, it, it, God's fingerprints and common grace is still abounds. So how how do we get from the garden but still see that the noble lie uh, that we can choose for ourselves and that's the best course of action is is still living and and is still what most people think to be correct. Um, Most people wouldn't know what we're talking about but the same desire for moral autonomy is probably best seen in the thinking that unless, okay, you're talking about God and you've got a Bible, okay, we'll make a deal. If that God would somehow show himself to me uh, to satisfy my curiosity and answer my questions, sure thing, I'll give him a chance and I'll hear him out. That would probably be what most would consider quite charitable. I mean, we look for things like that. You you mean you would consider the fact, well, come to church and listen and it may take a while. We'll try to explain it all the best we can. glad you're open-minded. There's quite a bit of autonomous audacity built into just that notice or or, uh, uh, notion. Think about it. The creator of the universe who created and sustains the, the place where we're talking and made the oxygen we're breathing. With that thinking, if this God exists, he must meet us on our terms recognize our right to judge whether or not he has sufficiently proven his existence before we will consider, demonstrate any such faith. I think that's pretty fair an assessment of the way most people would look at it. He can be God as long as we can be autonomous. But basically what we're saying is he'll need to bow down to us before we bow down to him. That's what happened in the garden. Um... I don't understand your tree of knowledge and good and evil and you need to explain to me before I'm willing to obey. Yeah. Parents, children, have a party. I mean, at what point is that an insult and at what point is that, well, then let's talk. But it's in our nature. We push back on what we don't even understand. We're pushing back on at times. And there's a lot of the story that God hasn't told us yet. Uh, But these themes are are still the same. The question is, what is the truth? Ultimately, you must decide. The Bible presents its authoritative evidence, but we must read it, study it, and decide whether or not we're going to believe it. Either God is God and I am not, in which case His judgment is to be trusted over mine, or else God is not God, in which case there's no reliable way of satisfactorily arbitrating at all between what is reasonable and what is not. We would be in on our own. Um, It's a lot to think about. It's heavy stuff. Um, I had written down here, taking a page out of um, several resources, but this is what I think I would ask that skeptic to at least consider, and whether or not somewhere in between might be a good place to start, but... Try this on. If there really is a God such as the Bible reveals Him to be... Let's just say that it's possible that this is true. Now, you know I believe this is true, but we're thinking here, right? Um, If this could be true, and this is the way God is revealed, then if it's true, He has to be smarter than I am. And His judgment has to be more reliable than mine. And if He and I differ on a matter, and if He's really God and I'm really His creature then it probably really is more than reasonable to assume that he's correct and I am mistaken. Yeah. If he's God and all that. Right? Um, But again, what's the truth? Now, I mentioned to start with, you don't know sin, you don't know your Bible. You, you, You don't know sin, you can't know your heart. If you don't understand sin, you can't understand salvation And then I said, if uh, you can't understand sin, then you can't understand the world we lived in. And uh, the most, most jarring thing that I've seen lately is what's going on in Israel that happened about two weeks ago. Now, I was at the beach, and I had decided I didn't want to use this much. So I missed it the first two days or so. Well, it was Sunday, sitting in a church we visited a lot more down at the beach. And uh, before the pastoral prayer, the pastor mentioned it. I didn't know what he was talking about. I went home, tried to figure it out. Then got frustrated trying to figure out what's really going on. And this is bad. This is one of the United States' allies. It's the powder keg of a region. And it has been for millennia. And anybody that likes peace knows that it, uh, there's allies that can get involved with this. This could escalate quickly. But as far as, 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 as Israel goes, um, how does this idea of sin fit into this? And just deductive reasoning or whatever. If, if human beings are basically good... Bible says we're basically bad, that's sin, right, but let's say that's that's off the table. If we're basically good, shouldn't we be able to work our way into getting along? and most people that live on this planet would say, yeah, but uh no, it's not that simple, okay, well, if it's not that simple then then what do we go with uh if we're basically good then If bad happens, well, then it must have been provoked, right? Because we otherwise would be peaceful. Right? Isn't that what you're hearing the most of? This is provocation. This is five-plus decades' worth of occupation. But then if we dig into some history and just think with our own brains, if it's provocation... Was that what the Holocaust was all about? Did, did the Jews in Europe provoke Germany into killing six million of them? No, we, we called evil evil then. That's bad. You don't do that. There's no reason for it. I don't care what God you believe in. You don't just delete six million people off the face of the planet because you don't like the way they do what they do. So... It's kind of different. And you kind of got to give a group of people who's been treated like that at least the room to wonder if the whole world hates them. And the right to defend themselves if they try to act like they do. So, the point I wanted to get to is this. That was a different war and that was a different time. We're right here now and it's not Germany, it's Hamas. But where Germany at least... Seemed to want to hide its tracks. There were mass graves where they buried all these people. And they hoped the world never found out what they did. Because the whole world would call it evil. And then they wouldn't be able to do the rest of what they wanted to do. But this group, Hamas, seemingly videoed what they did for the very purpose of showing the worst of it to the people they could cause the most suffering it's not good grammar, but I've never seen anything like this. And it's been confirmed that it's the single day's worst loss of Jewish life since the Holocaust. And somewhere I need, in my way to figure out this world, a, a box to put that in. And the only thing that I've got that makes any sense at all is that the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked... Who can know it? It'll lie to you, and you'll be inclined to believe it. Because at some point, we want to be autonomous. We want to decide what's good and what's bad. And with mission creep being the worst way to describe it, we will work ourselves by degrees into places where what we want justifies atrocities. And we still see it. And it's still going on. I don't really know what to think of much of this, and it's kind of hard to have enough data at least to think through, much less know what to say about it. But it surely goes without saying that anybody should certainly have every right to defend themselves against such things. And then I've heard some people asking, and and this is like insult to injury when, when, you know, as a Christian, and this book uh, is a Jewish book. Uh, They were called Hebrews in the Old Testament and Jews in the New Testament. And Jesus, the one we believe died on the cross to save us from our sins, is a Jew. It really kind of follows that if uh, Christians read this book and think a lot about it, and this book seems to think a lot about the Jews, then uh, Christians would think a lot about the Jews, at least uh, in concept, even though we know the Jews rejected the uh, Messiah that God sent them. Um, But What is being said about people like us in response to what we think about Israel? And I've seen it in so many different places. I've just stopped looking. Where's your God now? And if he existed, why would he let stuff like that go on? Doesn't seem like he does you much good because the longer time goes, the more he ignores you. Who wants to believe in a God that stands by? And I would love to answer that question face-to-face, eyeball-to-eyeball. And I'd first ask for a lot of time because it would take a lot of time, but I know what to tell them, and I'd start in Genesis. And if they'd give me enough time, I'd get to the best part of the story where God actually did stand by one afternoon when his own chosen people killed his only son. And because of their killing his only son, God has the very point where his love... And, and their hate meet along with His love and His justice and judgment. But it falls on the shoulders of His Son, and any who believe it by faith can be forgiven, redeemed, and given a brand new heart and new mind to think and to get back to the way He created in the garden, total, complete redemption in time. God hasn't stood by and done nothing. He did the only thing that could do any good And at great cost to himself. No one knows more what any of that feels like than the one who hung on the cross, took it all on his shoulders, and died for the punishment of it all. And as such, he's the one who gets to be the judge at the end, having known what the worst of us feels like, tastes like, sounds like, looks like. It's a wonderful story. But you've got to decide whether or not it's true. I hope you will. I'm convinced it is. And don't think that there haven't been times in my life where I'm like, is this really true? You know, most philosophical people want to say that there's kind of like uh, two stages. There's the first, oh, this is the best stuff. This is mine. I want it. Grab it with both hands. And then later, hmm. And then there's this second epiphany. It's mine now after trial and tribulation. Can you think of an illustration for that? Don't use your kids. Use your spouse. Some of those relationships blow up. Some of them make it through the worst of it. And is it better or worse after making it through the worst of it? Oh, you won't blow it up with dynamite then. So these are the things that I think might have been helpful. And as far as what we do in the meantime... While all this is going on, and what do we say? And if we had Jesus, Jesus, what do we do about what's going on in the Middle East? What do we do about what's going on in America? How are we ever going to get together as Americans and, and, and do something other than just scream and holler and yell at each other? I think he'd tell us what he told us a long time ago. And it's part of his uh, most famous sermon ever delivered, Sermon on the Mount. started with the Beatitudes. It ended with this... Uh, great story about building your life on a rock rather than on the sand, Uh, truth versus a lie. Well, in the middle of it, he just says, listen, don't be anxious about this stuff. Don't worry about what you're going to eat, what you're going to drink, what you're going to wear. Your Father in heaven knows all of that, and he's going to take care of you. Here's what you should do, though. While you're worried, be faithful. In seeking the kingdom first and my righteousness, I'll take care of all the rest of it. I don't really want to hear that when bullets are flying. But I've heard it long enough that if they start flying, I got that in my back pocket. And I know for certain, if the rest of this book is true, that if one of those bullets catches me, or a sword or whatever else, or explosion, or I don't know, he'll raise me up. Bulletproof, sword bulletproof, swordproof, nuclear bombproof. There's more than just this body here. It's a spirit that was meant to be eternal. It will be eternal. And God loves us enough to make sure that it happens by just taking all the bad stuff himself and uh, ridding the world of it. Good thing about sin is that it's temporary. It was a latecomer on the scene. It'll be an early lever on the scene. God will get rid of it. Again, he didn't tell us the whole story. Not all our questions are answered, but there's enough here for this guy to believe it and to raise his children that way and uh, hopefully to be useful to the kingdom and useful to society, useful as a father, Uh, useful as a thinker perhaps, useful as a servant. Well that said, I, I think we've spent enough. Next week, we'll go to chapter 4. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for another day in church, another day to read this really old book, another day to stretch our brains thinking, does it work? Does it answer the questions? Lord, it'd be an errand, a fool's errand for us to think that it would just take care of it all. Just like we are as children, we don't know everything our parents know. and Lord, as parents, we don't know everything, sometimes even what our children know. There's no way that we can compete with the all-knowing, all-loving, all-wise creator of the universe. We don't want to. Lord, we want you to shelter us under your wings. We want to be where you want us. We'd like to live forever in that place you created called paradise. Lord, for this time being, an experiment, it looks like, Lord, may you be true and every man a liar. And Lord, may we live that way. Tell the truth. Do what's right. Be kind. Treat our, 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 our brother like a neighbor. Lord, just let us act like you. And um, we'll let you be God and we'll be quiet. Lord, we uh, thank you again for another day in your house. And may your word have its witness. May it do the work of change that's needed, not any word of any man or two cents or anything else. We ask this in the strong name of Jesus. Amen.